0: All right, everyone. Welcome to Practice Indies podcast this week. I have the esteemed honor to have Max Elker Cantor. I've actually never said your last name out loud. Is that correct?
1: It is, yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Max Elker Cantor has been a longtime member. Um, you know, not to play favorites, but there are a few people that when they walk in the yoga room or I see them on Zoom, I have just I just light up. And Max, you are one of those people. You've always been such a joy to teach and to practice with. So it's so cool to get to have this conversation with you um, in general because of who you are, but also because of what you have to share. So I'll kick this off by saying this week we're going to be studying Shiva. And um, I want to be fully transparent as a white Jewish girl from Alabama that the context and concept of Shiva is much larger than one week of study There is Shaivism in Hinduism, which is an entire sect of Hinduism devoted to Shiva. So uh, by no means is this a podcast on the authority of Shiva. But what I would love to give our students and any yogis that are watching this is just like a sliver of something to uh, try to embody this concept into their lives. And I think in particular, what we're going to talk about today, it's it's incredibly relevant. So... um, shiva is the destroyer he is one of the three primary gods in hinduism and his role is primarily to destroy and i think in the west we struggle with the idea of destruction you know and i think of holidays that are popular here they're all about renewal rebirth celebration Mm -hmm. um easter is full of baby bunnies and chicks and uh, and we don't really love to talk about destruction. And, um, and it's such an important concept. And especially at this moment in time where we have, you know, national chance of burn it down. I think, um, I think it's important to look at this idea of Shiva and the idea of destruction. Because what comes from destruction is rebirth. Um, so that's about what I'll say in terms of Shiva and and this is what I hope leads into your topic of expertise. So can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and also uh, your writing?
1: Yes. Um, Well, thank you for that introduction and the opening. Um, I am Max Velker Cantor. I um, am a professor at Ball State University in the History Department and affiliated with the African American Studies program as well. Um, my teaching um, is in u.s history african-american history um, urban history race and inequality but most centrally on policing and mass incarceration um, is sort of some of my kind of broad teaching areas Um, my research focuses more directly on urban history but also the history of policing and the history of anti-police abuse movements in the United States, but specifically in Los Angeles. Um, and so I study the LAPD, anti-police abuse organizations in Los Angeles, largely all, largely in the post-World War II period from the roughly the 1950s to the, through the 1990s. And so I, um, I think what we're gonna talk a little bit more about today, and I should have had my prop, is that I have a book called Policing Los Angeles that started over a decade ago. Um, It came out about a year and a half ago. And it's on the development of the Los Angeles Police Department, anti-police abuse movements and politics in Los Angeles between the 1965 Watts uprising, which was in response to a moment of police abuse and book ended then on the other side with the 1992 Los Angeles rebellion um, after the acquittal of the officers who um, were on trial for beating Rodney King the year before. And so it tracks that and the relationship between those things over time.
0: I feel insignificant even attempting this conversation, but wow. Um, I guess just hearing that, what parallels are you seeing from 1965? And uh, what what parallels are you seeing from that time to our current period?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of like, really interesting question in a lot of ways it's I mean partially the interesting question is that the reason I say that is because like I'm a historian you look to the past but obviously you don't always expect the thing you study to be like so central um, to your kind of present moment I mean obviously as a historian I think it's all relevant to -hmm. our present but um, the parallels I mean the thing that I've been saying a lot to, to people is that many of us who study this the present isn't surprising um, and I say that in part because if you look, especially from the perspective of communities of color and other marginalized or communities who have been the subjects of heavy policing, the, the relationship with the police hasn't actually changed that much over time. The police have long been this kind of central force that, re- that in, my, in my analysis, hold up, protect property, protect capital, and also uphold a kind of racist hierarchical order. And that that's their kind of role in society. And that continues to sh- come out today. So it was like that in, in 1965, let alone, you know, the 19th century, but then also we see that today and you see that kind of what people are talking about today. But it's also that you see these kind of daily, kind of ex- the daily experience of many people with the police leads to these explosions, right? It's, it's not that like, just because George Floyd was his murder was caught on video camera by a police department that, Oh, everything all of a sudden erupted It in 1965 or 1992. It wasn't just all of a sudden is that you had people building organizations, building movements, um, trying to, you know, push, for a better world in the, in the years prior. And so it, it, that's what then leads in these kind of, inst- these, these particular moments builds on all of that. And so I think we see that parallel as well. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, I think as a white person, as someone who, you know, of, of all groups, I hold a great deal of privilege in all the intersections of my experience in the world and my identities. I am recognizing that this has, been, this has always been happening, as long as we've probably had police, um, just because we've had racial disparities in this country since, since jump. Um, and so I think for a lot of white people, it's probably waking up to, this isn't new. This is, this is the state of affairs. And we're just, mm-hmm. we're just becoming aware of it. Um, and, and that, obviously, is devastating to me that I've been asleep um, but also now we get to do something about it as a collective, you know, I, I think, um, if we can, if we can truly step into allyship, we can help turn the wheel and change and change and make change. So, you know, I'm hearing a lot of recently defund the police, burn it down. I like burn it down. It just, just feels good. Um, I love a good matchbox. Uh, but what does, what does defund the police actually mean? And if we were to, Shiva style, destroy it all, in your opinion, what should rise from that?
1: Right, so, I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, good question. Um, you know, and I think just to the first part of, your kind of talking about like a lot of white, you know, that's one thing we see different now. There, there's been a lot of news accounts like, oh, there's a lot of white people out at these protests and all of that. Um, And I think that's important. And it's like, you know, as I think the thing that we always have to remember is like the problem of racism in the country is a problem of white supremacy and a problem that like a lot of white people need to deal with, right? And I say this also self-consciously as a white scholar, right? Um, So it is that. It's, it's, you know, it's really important for people to start to shift perspectives because I think there are so many people who grow up you know, and I didn't mention this at the start, but like, I'm the, I'm the Jewish kid who grew up in Salt Lake City, right? Um, and, you know, it's like, I didn't have the same experiences that I write about and have learned about with the police, as other, you know, and it's like, it, it's really trying to get people to say, like, so many of us, especially white people have an assumption that the police are here for public safety and all these sorts of other things. And if you shift your perspective, you know, to other groups it doesn't look like that. So that's one piece um, that I think some people are grappling with. Okay. Um, but the defunding the police, I think the easiest way to get into this is to think about what I what activists, especially in Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives, um, call divest and then invest. So what do we mean by that is you di- you divest money from things like prisons, policing um criminal justice where there's an overwhelming amount of of resources that go to that like taxpayer dollars but you invest those things then in other things that help keep communities safe whether that's you know health service just like health care mental health jobs job training education schools right you so you you divest from things like policing which in some cities take up almost half, half the city's like budgets in some cases, right, just to the police, and you invest it in something else that you think, you know, in communities can help people be, um, and maintain safety, right, um, and it doesn't, so that's the kind of initial, one way to think about it, it's not just like get rid of that money, it's put it somewhere else. Um, and so it's, you know, and it's astonishing, you know, a lot of people are like, wow, I didn't realize how much money the police got, right, in these kind of, um, in, in a lot of these cities. And so it's and so like for Indianapolis, it's not the police, but like the city council two years ago said, we'll build a 600, $700 million new jail, essentially, what they call a justice complex, right, while we're gonna close public schools. Right. And so it's like, where do we in, where are we putting our money? Right. And so that's the kind of same thing with the police. Do you, do we invest more in the police to do things or do you, or do you divest from that and invest elsewhere? Um, So that's part of that. That's like one way to think about it. Um, And then the piece about like, what does defunding then look like is, and what is like, if you were to burn it all down, um, you know, to be like, very clear in like my politics on this like i am in the kind of a word that a lot of people might have heard going around right now or like police and prison abolitionists right are people who want to see a world in which prisons and policing is no longer necessary right and there's no longer a thing it's like building that world and so and i am in that camp um and what that essentially means is the thing that you know that scares a lot of people
0: Oh man, I just got so excited. I haven't heard of that. And I'm like, oh, I want to go there.
1: <laughs> so, so like, yeah, so it's like these kind of, this, and it's been around for a while, but like, you know, the people who, you, who I'm sure you, like Angela Davis is this like longtime prison abolitionist. Right. And so she's like one of the examples um, that's been working on this for a long time, but, and policing. And the goal there is also the way I approach it is it's not a recognition excuse me, it's a recognition that, like, if you say defund the police, we're not going to just turn around tomorrow and have no police, Mm -hmm. right? Is that what you are doing as an abolitionist project is moving in a direction that changes along the way, lead you to a world in which you've invested and created a society within which you don't lock people in cages, Mm And that you don't need that that you find other ways to deal with harms that happen in communities that you deal with other find other ways to ensure that those that you know safety is ensured in communities that doesn't look like a prisoner look like policing as we know it. Um, and that's, that's, it's a long term project, but and the reason why we say defunding the police is a step in that direction is because it's a reform, what abolitionists would call a non reformist reform, which means It's a change that doesn't actually give more money or more power or authority to the police. It says actually, this moves us in a direction that eventually we want to move to this other world of abolition, right? And so um and so what you build out of that, right, was the other part of your question, is that eventually the goal is it's a different society, right? And how you think of it, it's that you in the in the sense of like you invest in all these other things that our society in, a, in the united states because it's based on racism and capitalism has decided that we don't think we need right like real investment in you know like universal health care um you know in particular like full employment and jobs for people um capitalism is is predicated on inequality i know people don't like to talk about this but um but it's built on that. And so if we we wanna move to a world where we don't have those things, and that's where you get this kind of rebirth of something that looks, looks very different. Um, and obviously I'm a historian, so I can't tell you what that looks like exactly, but the goal is what things do you do if you take that money away from the police and put it into some other ways of developing safety, community, um, so that people, um, can live, you know, better lives. Um, that's a long answer to <laughs> what you asked, but. Um,
0: so good. Like, and you answered all of it, which I'm like really impressed at your memory recall right now. Um, it's uh, it a perfect answer, or at least what I was not knowing that I was looking for. Um, there's so much that is interesting to me there. It's like, where you? I've been urban gardening quite a bit in the quarantine, and uh, something I've learned is like when you, you know, as a as a new gardener, to prune a plant feels very scary because you're like, but I got that one flower. <laughs> you get so pumped about it. But and most plants, the what's that?
1: And then the bunnies eat
0: it. And then the bunnies eat it. And then yeah. you have hate for bunnies, which is a dark thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you cut the if you cut that bud off and you direct energy somewhere else, the plant explodes. Mm-hmm. and it And it becomes so much healthier, and it becomes so it's it's a it's an interesting thing i've been thinking about is like sometimes to create more abundance and you know betterness or whatever that means you've got to edit you've got to cut things that will feel painful that will be scary, but ultimately it will benefit it will benefit everybody um yeah, and I think this concept of Shiva in particular is imp- i I think it's empowering if we embrace destruction, knowing that it's not destruction for destruction's sake. It's not Heath Ledger in the Batman movie when he's like, I just want to burn it down. Mm-hmm. It's to burn it down in order to create a better, more equitable society. And um, and if you can't get behind that, there's a lot you have to unpack. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so yeah, I think I think that's super brilliant and exactly what I was hoping. Yeah, and it's like
1: again, it's it's. I've been trying to say this. It's like it's a process, right? It takes time. It's like people think, you know, the same thing. Like I'm sure you guys are talking about in yoga classes this week, right? It's like you're building things up over time. That's why we come back and practice and practice, right? Um, And the same thing, like in terms of these kind of these politics, right? It's like it's part of this kind of long-term process of building something, and. Because of a lot of things going on, which you know we didn't talk like COVID and and these kind of this moment of protest, there's an opportunity to really rebuild the world right now. I think, and that's what I think we're seeing from some people.
0: So, yeah, thank you um, for your for your honesty and your um, and your thoughts and your time. I guess my last question would just be like, is there Is there something you wish people, as a historian or as a teacher, is there something you wish people knew more about or would, and maybe I'm speaking specifically to white people, um, would invest more of their energy into learning about or understanding? Is there anything in that regard that would help this destruction to rebirth process, in your opinion?
1: Yeah, I mean... Obviously, as a historian, I would say, I think that like people like learning some of this history of whether it's around mass incarceration, around policing and all that, like, these things were all built, right, historically, like, they're not just like inevitable, they're all built. And so it's like, so as a historian, my point is like, that if you learn the history, right, you can learn the choice that you think you can think deeply about the choices people have made, why they made them. Um, as a way to re- re- really see, because I think we get into our present and we're like, oh, this is the way things are. Um, but what history often shows us, right, is that nothing's inevitable and people make choices within particular contexts that lead us to where we've where we've, gone, where we've come, right? And so if you learn some of the history of policing and it's, you know, deeply kind of racist past and present, um, that that can help you kind of really interrogate, well, how do we get here? Why is this happening? I think that's a good place to start. Um, you know, and then, of course, the other things that are going around right now are a lot of books that are about um, anti-racism, how to be an ally, right, all those things. So those things are good things to also, like, interrogate. And I think for, you know, a lot of people who are coming to this for the first time, it's like, is to really be, op- just kind of be open, because a lot of the stuff's in- uncomfortable for a lot of people to be like, oh, I've never thought of myself as being, you know, and that's kind of the point, right, it's like, you're going to be uncomfortable with this if you haven't really thought about it, um, and so that's like, you know, just to be open to recognizing these other perspectives is kind of part of it as well, um, and obviously, I'm always in favor of people reading more history, but.
0: Is there, uh, so what's the title of your book?
1: It's called Policing Los Angeles, Race, Resistance, and the Rise of the LAPD.
0: So that would be a great book to read. <laughs> uh, what would, is there like a history favorite that, a book that you'd suggest?
1: Well, I mean, the the one that I think like a lot of people may, may be familiar with, right, is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. That's kind of a very popular, like widely accessible book. That's not quite as academic, um, but talks about how mass incarceration, policing, all of that is kind of an updated form of Jim Crow. Um, so that's like a, a usually a really kind of accessible, open one. Um, there is obviously like Ibram Kendi's "How to Be an Anti-Racist" um, is kind of a, is a is a useful um, book. Um, Getting at that, there's, I mean, there's tons of other historical works, but you know, for people just getting into it, I think those are like at least two, you know, approachable texts that you know can help you start to think about some of these things.
0: Awesome. I'll put this one in the show notes too. But uh, one of my favorites is Blessed Unre- Unrest. It is written by a white dude, but he's an ecologist, and so it talks about the intersectionality of uh, socioeconomic, political, environmental. Mm -hmm. Uh, inequity and how they all go together. And uh, I think as a white person, it was the first time I read the detailed account of Emmett Till's murder. Mm -hmm. And I had nightmares still do about that for not to scare anyone, but to say like, you have to, as white people, we have to face this and it is uncomfortable and, and it has to be uncomfortable. And I think that also is sort of the Shiva energy of destruction. It's like, we want to turn away. We want it to feel good. We want I've had a lot of people ask me like, how are you doing during this time? And I've been brutally honest and people are so uncomfortable with me saying like, I'm not okay. I'm angry. I'm, you know, I have every emotion right now. And I think that's also something that I, I hope to teach on this week. Uh, we're doing Natarajasana, which is just a horrible pose. Um, and it's super uncomfortable. Like if you're, if you're comfortable in it, then you were born in a backbend. It's just really painful, but I think we have to recognize that that pain and that discomfort is part and parcel of the growth if we're really committed to it. And um, nothing in nature goes through change easily. It's always a bit cataclysmic. So um, I thank you so much for your insight, for your honesty, for you being, for you being a yogi and for, uh, you know, since we've been in the garage to, to the...
1: The right. double
0: decker. Just thank you, thank well,
1: you for being. Well, well, thank you very much, and thank you for for having me and chatting. So,
0: so great! Thanks, Max. Go buy his book. He's the best. <laughs>